0: we
1: Ladies and gents, welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. We're going to continue our discussion of UBI. To recap, the first episode looked at the idea itself, the history, some of the experiments we have. The second looked at what progressives have to say in support of UBI. This episode, we do a 180-degree turn from last week, heading to the other side of politics to see what libertarians and some conservatives have to say about UBI. First off, what do I mean by a libertarian? Broadly, a libertarian is someone who believes in individual freedom, defined as the absence of coercion. As such, libertarians believe in limited government, as reducing the role of government maximises individual freedom. It's important to note that there are also left-leaning libertarians who hold slightly different views, so just know that when I refer to libertarians, I'm referring to right-leaning libertarians. So... If libertarians believe in small government, why would they support UBI, a policy that requires massive amounts of taxation? Doesn't that go against libertarian ideals? The answer is, it does. This is why most libertarian UBI advocates stress that UBI, or a negative income tax, isn't an ideal policy. In an ideal world, most libertarians abolish government welfare altogether. However, since our societies already have welfare states, introducing UBI as a replacement to all existing welfare programs is an improvement on the status quo. This is a key point of difference from progressive advocates who tend to retain current welfare programs. Now, as we discussed in Part 1, most libertarians typically prefer a negative income tax over a UBI because, well, that's what Milton Friedman said. If you didn't listen to part one, a negative income tax provides a basic income to people through the tax system. Basically, if you earn below a certain income level, you get a cash subsidy from the government. If you earn above that level, you start paying income tax to the government. So basically the reverse of the system we already have in place for people at low income levels. Again, a negative income tax, in theory, is identical to a UBI that imposes a positive tax as soon as you earn money, without exemption. They result in the same after-tax effects. Even Milton Friedman admitted this. But in practice, this would depend on the policy's details, whether or not it scraps low-income tax exemptions. So why do libertarians or conservatives who are meant to support small government also advocate UBI? One justification for government regulation for these people is to address instances where the market fails – also known as a market failure. Let's assume we live in a world without government welfare, a pure free market economy. Any assistance to the disadvantaged would have to come through voluntary private charity. That's you and I donating to charities, volunteering our time and money, helping those who've fallen on bad times. However, this raises a big problem because if I give $1,000 to help someone out on their feet, I can be said to benefit from helping this person out of poverty. But if I simply watch someone else give $1,000 to help this person out, as a third party, I also benefit from the alleviation of this person's poverty. In other words, I stand to benefit whether or not I donate $1,000. Because of this, many people would only be willing to contribute to the relief of poverty, provided everyone else does, And so, by itself, the market won't provide enough charity. In economics, this is known as a positive externality, a market failure that justifies government intervention in the form of welfare. This is something the economist Milton Friedman argued in his 1962 classic, Capitalism and Freedom. But simply because we can rationalise welfare, that doesn't mean all forms of welfare are the same. This is why many people prefer UBI over the existing welfare state that many countries around the world have. Modern welfare states provide welfare in different forms, whether that's subsidised services, in-kind benefits like food stamps, or conditional transfers. For example, if you apply for 10 jobs per week, the government will give you, say, $1,000 a month. But the welfare state has many issues. The first big problem is that these welfare benefits have insanely high marginal tax rates. Let me explain. Imagine you're unemployed and receiving unemployment benefits worth $1,000 a month. You will eventually find a job, but it's only casual. It also pays $1,000 a month. If you take the job and report your income legally, you immediately lose the $1,000 in your unemployment benefits. And to replace it, you need to work for the $1,000 of earned income at your new job. The net effect of this is a marginal tax rate of 100%. In other words, every dollar you earn at your new job is effectively taxed at 100% because you're losing an equal amount in unemployment benefits. So you're actually worse off in this situation because your job requires effort much more than what's required to collect unemployment benefits. Now, who in their right mind would go to work if they faced a 100% tax? Hard pass from me. But the problem actually gets worse. Because welfare states have become so enormous, I think the US administers 126 different welfare programs, correcting for every form of poverty, whether that's being a single mother, health, or diet outcomes. Sometimes the various welfare programs intersect to produce what's known as a cliff point. This is where earning an extra dollar actually costs you more in lost benefits. Yeah, that's right. You face a tax rate above 100%. You actually lose money if you work. This is so outrageous that I can't believe it actually happens. But it does. And it explains the right-wing trope that welfare keeps people stuck in poverty, or the poverty trap. There's every incentive for people in these circumstances to actually turn down a pay raise or a new job because If they take that raise or if they take that new job, they go backwards economically. Again, I don't know about you guys, but I'd never take a legal wage if I faced a tax rate of even 70%, let alone more than 100%. And it's not just the work requirement that can screw people over. The disability requirement also involves moral hazards, basically a fancy term for incentives that encourage bad behaviour. As Guy Standing points out, So, I will note, not a libertarian, but someone who just agrees that the welfare state can have perverse effects. If a disabled person tries to overcome their disability and is judged able to work, they'll lose their benefit. If they don't overcome their disability, they keep their benefit. So, trying to overcome your disability is actually penalised. UBI simply doesn't have these problems. Now, the second big problem with welfare is its paternalism. The idea that the government knows best, and so it, in all its wisdom, decides how poor people must spend their money. To quote Michael Tanner from the Cato Institute, we treat poor people like they're three year olds. If you want people to be responsible adults, you need to treat them like responsible adults. If they're poor because they lack cash, we should give them cash and let them take charge of their lives. And if your concern is that welfare recipients will fritter it all away on things like drugs and alcohol, Here's Matt Feeney from Reason. Quote, Many welfare recipients are required to undergo drug tests, despite the fact that many Americans take illegal drugs while still being good parents and holding down a job. If employed professionals are able to fulfill their duties at work while also maintaining a recreational drug habit, why should welfare recipients be treated differently? In fact, in 2012 welfare recipients in Utah were found to test positive for illegal drugs at rates less than the national average, and in Arizona, 87,000 screenings between 2009 and 2012 yielded only one positive test result. And to be clear, this paternalism comes from both sides of politics, both the left and the right. Andrea Costello called it the bastard child of conservative judgment and progressive condescension towards the poor. As Matsulinski, a professor at the University of San Diego, writes, quote, conservatives want to help the poor, but only if they can demonstrate that they deserve it by jumping through a series of hoops meant to demonstrate their willingness to work, to stay off drugs, and preferably to settle down into a nice, stable, bourgeois family life. And while progressives generally reject this attempt to impose traditional values on the poor, they have almost always preferred in kind grants to cash precisely as a way of making sure the poor get the help they really need. Shouldn't we trust poor people to know what they need better than the federal government? And often, the paternalism is just wasteful. For example, if poor people need money for a particular reason, they'll almost always convert these in-kind benefits into cash, usually at a discount. That's just wasteful. I actually saw this happen the other day. A homeless lady asked my girlfriend to buy her soap from the store. My girlfriend, who was rattled, just obliged. But after leaving the store, we see this homeless lady trying to sell that very soap to another homeless person on the street, obviously far below market value, for some cash. So that's just wasteful. And it's not just the paternalism, but the humiliation that these welfare recipients go through every time they have to show things like food stamps at a grocery store. Plus, UBI can result in huge cost savings by eliminating bloated welfare bureaucracies and all their overhead costs. But the strongest argument in favour of replacing the welfare state with UBI is this. Despite spending huge sums of money, there isn't a single welfare state to have completely eliminated poverty. According to Michael Tanner, in 2012, the US government, at all levels, spent over $20,000 for every poor person in America. This amount is much higher than the US poverty line of U.S. dollars Or, better put by Charles Murray, "...America's population is wealthier than any in history. Every year, the American government redistributes more than a trillion dollars of that wealth to provide for retirement, healthcare, and the alleviation of poverty. We still have millions of people without comfortable retirements, without adequate healthcare, and living in poverty." Only a government can spend so much money so ineffectually. The solution is to give the money to the people. End quote. Basically, all these libertarians are saying is this. We should be redirecting all the money we spend on welfare and putting it straight into people's hands. They'll do a much better job with the money because they know what they need. Bureaucrats don't. So that's the scathing critique of the welfare state, a key reason why many libertarians and also some progressives advocate UBI, but as Charles Murray argues, UBI also gives people moral agency and responsibility that they've never had before, a better chance for self-improvement, to make the right choices and get their lives in order. Here's Charles Murray himself making this point.
0: But the other reason I've I've wanted to write the book is because I thought and I still think it provides a way in which we might actually revitalize America's civic culture, which is to say the civic culture in which A lot lot of problems get solved at a very local level. And the reason I make that argument is that an income stream, and under my plan, the money would be deposited every month electronically into a known bank account. An income stream gives people moral agency, whether they want it or not. Uh, Let's take the example of a guy who is living off his girlfriend. And he can't seem to hold on to a job, and uh, he's uh, feckless, and she puts up with him, she loves him uh, well all at once now he's got an income stream. I think it's quite probable <clears throat> that the young woman will say, "You know what? I think uh, kicking in three or four hundred bucks a, m- a month at this point is appropriate. I think that's a very good thing for her to do, and it's very good for him to be hit with that request. I also think it's a good thing that if he uh drinks up all his money under a universal basic income with 10 days to go, that his friends or his girlfriend or his parents or other people say, well, we aren't going to let you starve, but it's time to get your act together. And I think that kind of saying to someone, don't tell us you're helpless because you aren't helpless. The question is whether you're going to do anything about it. I think those kinds of interactions on uh, millions of times a day around the Mm -hmm. country would be a good thing.
1: Now, it's been pointed out that Murray's wish for a revival of civic culture and better behaviour is actually a moralistic conservative position, and not actually about freedom. I don't think that's a big point, but it shows why conservatives might also favour UBI. But there's actually a deeper philosophical point that underscores all of this. You may have heard of Friedrich Hayek, a prominent libertarian economist and philosopher in the 20th century. Well... Funnily enough, Hayek also came out in support of UBI. He says, quote, The assurance of a certain minimum income for everyone, or a sort of floor below which nobody need fall, even when he is unable to provide for himself, appears not only to be wholly legitimate protection against a risk common to all, but a necessary part of the great society in which the individual no longer has specific claims on the members of the particular small group into which he was born. End quote. What on earth does this mean? Although Hayek doesn't elaborate too much on this, we have some interpretation from philosopher Matt Zulinski. First off, to Hayek, freedom means living one's life according to his own decisions and plans, not being subject to the will of another person. And in contrast, coercion is when your actions are made to serve another man's will for their purpose, either through the threat of physical harm or withholding a resource critical to your existence. For example... Let's assume you're stranded in the desert and there's only one person who owns the water supply. If they refuse to give you water or will only give it to you for an exorbitant price, this is coercion because one, you have no other options and two, you have a right to your own life. But the same isn't true if there's only one painter who, for example, can paint your portrait for an extremely high price. Because although you also have no other options here, you don't have a right to receive a painting. So to Hayek, it's all about whether a proposal increases or decreases your options relative to a baseline in which your rights are respected. How, then, does UBI come into all of this? Basically, we need UBI because poverty makes people vulnerable to coercion. Imagine a housewife dependent on her husband's paycheck who has to put up with abusive behaviour. Giving this housewife a UBI gives her options – the ability to walk out of the relationship and still survive. Now, it's important to note, not all libertarians agree with this. Some argue that if the housewife made a choice to marry this guy and also made the choice not to work, then the situation she finds herself in is the result of her choice and not coercion. But to Hayek, it doesn't matter how the coercion came about. It's just that it exists. Now, critics might argue... UBI goes further than this. It helps people who aren't vulnerable to coercion, but simply choose not to work. In an ideal world, Hayek concedes this point and would support means testing UBI so it doesn't go into the bank accounts of people who can support themselves through work. But we don't live in a perfect world of perfect knowledge. Administering means-tested welfare involves some errors. Sometimes those who deserve welfare are denied benefits, and sometimes those who don't deserve welfare receive benefits. Because of these administration errors, Zulinski argues that it's much better to pay slightly more in taxes to ensure everyone who is deserving of UBI actually receives it, even if it means some people take advantage of the system. Now, to be perfectly clear, not all libertarians agree with this idea, nor do they agree with this generous interpretation of Hayek. For them, libertarian freedom doesn't extend this far so as to justify UBI. Dr. Brian Kaplan, who's a professor of economics at George Mason University, is one of these people. He argues that UBI is forced charity, and that forced charity is unjust, it's unnecessary, it gives recipients bad incentives. And it has a high cost, which will lead to a future of high taxes or financial crisis. But he admits that even if forced charity is unjust, it's less unjust if it helps people who can't help themselves, like children or the disabled. On the other hand, forced charity for everyone, whether they need it or not, is simply not defensible as a libertarian. And not to mention wasteful. If you were running a private charity, would you think it's wise to run a charity for everyone or a charity for those in need? Clearly, if we administer welfare, it must be means tested to those who need it. And on that note, this is where we'll end this episode. Next time, we take a look at what could be wrong with UBI. Surely it's not as perfect as people would have you believe. I'll see you next time. I think they're all insane. If you got value from this episode, please do me a quick favour. First hit subscribe. And second, leave a five-star review if you're podcasting or hit the like button and the notification bell if you're YouTubing. There, too easy. See you next time.